Hackers, the modern day criminal. My name is Jack and I'm glued to a good cybercrime story. Just listen to some of these guys. I accidentally robbed the wrong bank the last time I was in Beirut. The first time you steal a billion dollars, it's a bit of a rush. After you've kind of done this so many times, it's almost expected. Want to hear the rest of their stories and other true stories from the dark side of the internet? Go listen to the podcast, Darknet Diaries. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Mission Shunya podcast. Well, actually it's episode number 25, so it's a special one. So big thank you for following and listening to every episode of the podcast. And if this happens to be the first time you're tuning in, thanks for giving it a try. If you liked it, please check the archives and also subscribe to the podcast. The podcast is available on all major platforms for Apple and Android devices. A new episode is released every fortnight. With that brief, let's get to the feature segment with a special guest for this week. As I mentioned the last time around, since this is episode 25, I wanted to bring to you an interesting journey and a story. Well, I have mentioned in the podcast a few times that I have been really fortunate to meet amazing people in my life from time to time. Some of the connections that I have made have stuck around for years now, turning into a good relationship over time. It's one such relationship that I am tapping into for this week's episode. Today's guest is a global expert when it comes to energy storage and policies related to it. A renowned speaker at major global events and as a professional has had significant contributions to the energy sector in the US and in India. So, who's my guest for today? Hello, I'm Dr. Rahul Walawalkar. Dr. Rahul Walawalkar is an industry veteran, if I could use that phrase. He has been at the forefront of the energy technology transition and has a particular affinity towards energy storage. He is regularly seen speaking at various forums globally emphasizing the need for energy storage and other emerging technologies. Rightly so, he began the Emerging Technologies Practice for Customized Energy Solutions, a company with the global headquarters in Philadelphia, US. He now leads the Indian operations for CES and is also the founder and president of the India Energy Storage Alliance. He has also held senior leadership positions at the Global Energy Storage Alliance and other industry bodies. For someone whose name is synonymous with energy, how did it all begin? Uh, I'd say I give uh, credit to uh, actually my mentor and uh, former neighbor, uh, Mr. Madhusudan Murthy. Uh, I grew up uh, admiring him. Uh, he was an electrical engineer from College of Engineering, Pune, and uh, ran his own company, uh, uh, Power Engineers. Uh, so throughout, actually, during my school days, I used to do various uh, school science projects with him, uh, doing like a small wind turbine uh, or using cycle dynamo or others and uh, also seeing him professionally uh, how uh, he was working he was one of my role models uh, so i grew up thinking that okay i wanted to become a electrical engineer and i did my engineering from valchan college of engineering uh, uh, and then uh, got into it but uh, uh, because of the influence of uh, mr murthy uh, i always wanted to be more on the energy side so even within uh, Tata Infotech, although I joined as a Y2K programmer, uh, soon I ended up uh, starting a group uh, looking after energy management and later on was actually made uh, in charge of uh, All India for looking after energy management initiatives for Tata Infotech. 
and since i was in it company i was able to marry uh, some of the uh, initiatives we were doing on energy management with also developing some software solutions around it uh, so developed uh, ecolumen which was uh, uh, the first energy efficient lighting design software from india back in uh, 2000 2001 uh, and then i decided to um, uh, get myself a little bit more educated because while i was working at tata infotech and developing software most of it was done through sort of self learning uh, but i felt that to uh, continue working on this and to be really seen as an expert uh, i wanted to upgrade myself so i went to us did my masters in energy management from new york institute of technology and then ended up joining customized energy solutions in 2004 and simultaneously did my phd in uh, engineering and public policy at carnegie mellon university where i could actually get more involved in uh, not just the technical aspects but also related to the policies and business aspects and since then i have uh, last 16 years i have been with customized energy solutions working on various emerging technologies and integrating them with electricity markets around the globe that is a fascinating journey rahul i'm sure after your phd is when i think the checkered career began in energy in a big way so how do, how do you go on describing your work in the us i believe that set your path of where you wanted to be i mean all the emerging technologies that you mentioned i think your phd program was a big step in that in that regard yeah definitely uh, uh, i give a lot of credit to both my work uh, uh, at customized energy solutions as well as uh, uh, learnings i got at uh, carnegie mellon university to where i am right now i sort of went into phd uh, uh, thinking that i already actually knew a lot about uh, energy industry and uh, uh, i just uh, wanted uh, uh, to get a phd so that uh, Uh, other people i can get a entry into like this policy think tank area where usually uh, unless you have a phd yeah, sometimes uh, you don't get a entry but uh, being part of the epp program and uh, learning from likes of dr j apt who was my uh, principal advisor and uh, he is still the executive director of carnegie mellon electricity industry center or granger morgan who was a uh, uh, head of the department or lester lay who was one of the uh most prominent economist energy economist in uh, us at that time as well as dr rahul tongia who is now currently fellow at brookings uh it has been a complete eye opener uh, and especially the way the engineering and public policy program is uh, designed uh we get uh, students from across various uh, uh focus areas where at the same time like there are around 15 students each year uh, some are working on healthcare some are working on education some working on energy some working on homeland security issues or cyber security issues uh, so the entire program is designed in a way where uh, all the students get appreciation of uh, not just the technical issues related to what their their primary focus of learning is but also start appreciating some of the nuances which policy makers have to go because it it's always easy for to sit outside and uh, criticize policy makers but uh, the job of policy makers is uh, really challenging where uh, they have to do uh, consider lot of trade offs so going through the program and working with uh, 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 all the faculty members as well as a diverse group of students uh, it completely changed my outlook on how i was looking at uh, when i did my engineering my focus was oh engineers know uh, exactly how to make things and engineers have the solution when i was working in tata infotech i started getting appreciation about sort of the management and role of business and uh, how a particular company can take some engineering solutions to commercialization and product 
And during my stay in US, actually, I started getting appreciation of how businesses and governments can work together to actually make uh, some changes and also realize sort of limitation both on the business side as well as on the government side uh, where you see a lot of times some big announcements or big plans, but uh, there is a significant difference between uh, plans and what happens on the ground. Uh, so uh, the interdisciplinary program at CMU uh, was a perfect uh, platform where I could actually do a deep dive into a number of these issues, which sometimes when you are just working, uh, you cannot get into. And plus, by being part of the customized energy solutions while I was doing uh, uh, my PhD, uh, I was able to pick up some real life challenges and problems and focus my research around that. So during my PhD program, I focused on economics of both energy storage as well as demand response technologies in electricity markets. So uh, unlike uh, like most of the times when students go for PhD, uh, uh, they get a recommendation that, oh, just focus on where you have a funding. After you do PhD, most likely no one will ask you about your thesis. But uh, uh, I think I'm uh, uh, lucky enough where now after almost uh, uh, 12 years of completing my PhD, I still keep on going, getting uh, inquiries about it. And uh, as my advisor used to joke that I can stop uh, downloading uh, uh, my thesis uh, now that it has become one of the most uh, downloaded uh, uh, PhD thesis from the C- uh, CMU website. <laughs> That was really fascinating, I must admit. I also chanced upon to see your thesis while I was doing my master's research. And for all listeners, I have to tell them that for anyone looking on demand response or the markets in general in US, Rahul Walawalka's thesis pops up right in the front on the search page. So that is really popular and uh, I think it's cited most. And uh, that's a wonderful work that you've done. So yeah, the only caveat uh, uh, I would say is that I think, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite relevant at that time, but there are so many things which have changed both on the technology side. Uh, for example, when I was working on my thesis, uh, lithium-ion batteries were not even considered as a serious contender for grid applications. Similarly, in terms of the market rules and structures, uh, actually some of the work which I did in my PhD ended up uh, influencing uh, policies at Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, uh, both on demand response incentives as well as creation of uh, ancillary markets and opening ancillary markets for technologies like energy storage. So when I was actually working on my thesis, uh, unfortunately, those markets did not exist. So a lot of things have changed since then. So again, I don't mind people still looking at it, but I always caution people that uh, a lot has changed both in the techno- technological world as well as uh, on the policy and market side. Uh, so uh, uh, just pay attention to that as well. Just out of curiosity, feel free to download it. But a lot of things have changed uh, uh, in the world since then. Exactly. Talking in particularly of the change that has happened ever since you wrote the paper, Rahul. From the technology perspective, like how how would you say what has been the major change in the technology front as the clean tech transition has happened over the decade and a half since you finished PhD thesis? How would you sum it up for anyone who's listening, common person who's listening to this? How would you sum it up for such a person? Sure. So I think last 15 years has been actually a, a really a sort of a dream come true in terms of seeing some of the transitions. Uh, uh, if you just sort of a roll back and look at like uh, uh, 2002, 2003 timeline, uh, there was a time when actually in US, uh, most of the generation was still fossil fuel based and coal uh, being a dominant. Uh, and few years before that, people were starting to invest very heavily in natural gas. But then natural gas prices went from $2 per MMBTU to 
uh, almost $10 per MMBTU. And we had a lot of standard assets with uh, natural gas turbines, which were uh, installed, but were not getting dispatched in the market. Uh, and that time, solar and uh, uh, other renewables were seen as something which is just for sort of a, uh, aspirational targets from the environment point, but not having even like a few percentage in terms of the annual energy uh, uh, output uh, at the national level. Uh, so mainly the focus was a lot on uh, uh, conventional resources and then just looking at dynamics between between those. Uh, but then uh, around 2008, to, uh, policy started shifting where uh, the electricity markets led by FERC uh, particularly started allowing range of different technologies, non-generation technologies to start participating in wholesale electricity markets. And that generated uh, emergence of uh, technologies like sodium sulfur batteries, lithium-ion batteries, flywheels, uh, which started getting integrated with the electric grid. And some of the early projects which uh, uh, which were commissioned actually integrated both uh, the, these technologies with uh, conventional resources like uh, thermal plants, uh, but also uh, in some cases started integrating them with renewables and started showing how actually storage can uh, help uh, a grid operate more efficiently. And once some of these initial projects were installed, actually policymakers also started to realize. And that was a time when we started seeing a very rapid decline in uh, solar prices. And some of the things which uh, most of the people felt were just aspirational, but within last 10 years, people have seen as the uh, scaling up of these technologies and projects have happened, it is not just about the cost reduction at the manufacturing level, uh, but how the entire project cost, how the optimization of the project, how the improvement of the design, improvement of the operations of the project has actually brought the levelized cost down. And that is, I think, a classic learning, which I hope will stay uh, there with uh, industry for uh, at least next 20, 30 years. Because right now, again, there are a number of these uh, new technologies which are getting integrated and at, perhaps at a similar stage where solar was back in 2004, 2006. Uh, but having seen within last 10 years the kind of uh, success which solar has had, I think that gives a lot of good uh, confidence to people. At the same time, in last decade, there have been a lot of uh, uh, failed investments in this sector. So I hope people can also sort of learn from that and uh, uh, be humble that some of the things, uh, again, no one can predict it accurately. Uh, so we have to provide uh, more sort of a technology agnostic policies and encourage competition and let market decide which is a technology winner. Well, we couldn't have had a better summary of the clean tech transition over the last couple of decades from a global perspective. Hackers, the modern day criminal. My name is Jack and I'm glued to a good cybercrime story. Just listen to some of these guys. I accidentally robbed the wrong bank the last time I was in Beirut. The first time you steal a billion dollars, it's a bit of a rush. After you've kind of done this so many times, it's almost expected. Want to hear the rest of their stories and other true stories from the dark side of the internet? Go listen to the podcast, Darknet Diaries. Rahul summed up every major aspect of the space, ranging from the emergence of market-based procurement of energy in the US, to the reclining price of solar and wind power projects, to the rise and fall of companies and failed investments during the same time. Taking cue from his last line, that is, let the markets decide the right technology solution. What is this impression from interaction with policymakers who shape the markets? Has it drastically changed in the last decade or so? 
Uh, so I would say maybe I'll separate out maybe some of the developed countries versus developing countries in this regard. Uh, uh, and again, in both cases, I would say there is a noticeable difference as compared to 10 years back. Uh, and now it's just that maybe where they are in terms of the maturity level is uh, uh, still different. Maybe it is also dominated by the local political or socioeconomic uh, pressures which the policymakers have. So again, I don't blame them for that. But if I see uh, uh, places like US or Europe, uh, I see a lot more uh, clarity uh, in terms of the policymakers, particularly in some regions, like you take example of California or New York or others, where they have realized that uh, this technology transition is coming and they are looking at it into more holistically. In India, 10 years back, uh, perhaps there was a complete denial or people basically just believed that uh, since it will take like 10 years for these technologies to get commercialized in uh, US or Europe, India should wait another 10 years. So basically, when we started uh, India Energy Storage Alliance back in 2012-13, majority of the people almost laughed at us saying that, why are you looking at uh, focusing on uh, these emerging technologies in India? Uh, it is going to be 2030 before India uh, will start adopting these technologies. Uh, whereas we believe that India needs to leapfrog by adopting these technologies at the same time as they get commercialized in US and Europe, because we also saw this time a window of opportunity where India can actually start focusing on R&D and manufacturing while these technologies are getting commercialized rather than being just a late adopter and importing these technologies. So we see in India right now there is some uh, policymakers have very well uh, understood some of these nuances and understand this opportunity, particularly I would say folks at Niti Aayog led by the, Mr. Amitabh Kant uh, is a classic example. Uh, former MNRE secretary, uh, uh, Dr. Satish Agnihotri was again a classic example and perhaps I think at a PMO level, directly at a prime minister uh, level, I think uh, he is... Uh, someone who really understands this and is uh, uh, focused on it. Unfortunately, with the majority of the bureaucracy, I think there is still a tendency where there is a paralysis uh, by uh, just doing endless uh, analysis. Uh, where uh, And there is also, I think, a lot of vested interest groups who are uh, interested in just keep on bringing up new uh, topics for discussion and try to delay some of the impending decisions. So in India, we are still having this fight where uh, at a high level, yes, uh, directly from the Prime Minister or the CEO of the Niti Aayog uh, or some of the ministries, there is a very clear understanding. There is a focus on launching manufacturing policy along with uh, increasing deployment. But on ground, we still need to have a better uh, uh, support. And some of the things probably I think industry will just have to take a lead on it. I think we cannot just wait for policymakers because they are still waiting for uh, some other triggers or just waiting for prices to come down further. Although in last 10 years already we have witnessed for some of the technologies uh, almost like 90% price reduction. So that is amazing and there are already uh, a few gigawatt hour worth of opportunities which are already economical right now in India. So what uh, we are trying to do it is now uh, uh, while we continue to support policymakers and help educate them, uh, we are not counting on uh, just policymakers leading the way uh, like it has happened in California or other places. We think in India, industry needs to also step up and uh, uh, start uh, deploying these technologies uh, where it is already economical and start scaling up uh, on their own. Industries taking a lead is a perfect example. You have mentioned this at multiple forums and you've been advocating this for the last few years. So industries taking a lead is one thing. Now shifting gears, if we were to look on the other side, I'm sure 
over the years, over the decades, you would have interacted with common consumers as well. I'm sure we have, we we definitely working in the space. We definitely have like a lot of queries when someone asks you about some technology. There are myths and there are misconceptions about the technology and how this happens. So, how has that journey been? Interacting with common consumers who hear something like a solar or electric vehicle for the first time. Uh, sure. So I think both side. Uh, uh, I see uh, there is a lot of curiosity right now, and also I think with. Uh, some of the successes, both on the solar side as well as on the EV side with the classic example being Tesla. Uh, I think there is a lot more uh, awareness that these technologies are very close to commercialization. In India right now, uh, one challenge most of the consumers have is that the right products are not very easily available or sometimes the financing associated with them is not available. Uh, so what we are looking at focusing on is not just focusing on the technology and just hoping that uh, there will be some technology breakthrough which will uh, uh, suddenly make a product uh, reach a wider acceptance. Uh, we have to work on the rest of the ecosystem as well. Uh, so for, take a classic example of smartphones, right? Uh, just maybe five years back or 10 years back, uh, there were very few believers uh, who felt that a country like India can have a larger adoption of uh, smartphones. Uh, even just three or four years back, classic example of the former country head for Vodafone said that, oh, India doesn't need uh, uh, 4G uh, uh, data speeds, even the, with the current 2G or 3G speeds are not being utilized. So we don't need to invest in India. And suddenly we have seen with last two, three years as the uh, smartphone crisis, there were new uh, smartphones being uh, started getting introduced at price points below uh, 20,000 rupees as compared to the original uh, smartphones like uh, Apple or Samsung, which were priced at 40,000 or above, uh, suddenly the market started expanding. And with entry of Relangio, where the data prices started coming up, now India has within the uh, last two years suddenly become one of the largest consumers of uh, uh, data. Uh, so these are the type of changes I think will happen and Indian consumers are very smart. In India right now, uh, uh, for EVs or on the stationary energy storage, we think uh, uh, we need little bit more availability of some of the better products in the market. And also we need a uh, uh, little bit innovation around uh, the financing and associated business models because for number of customers in India, typically uh, uh, just buying out uh, a higher priced uh, item is a little bit uh, challenging. Uh, at the same time, there are a range of customers and we have seen the biggest adoption of this is in terms of uh, e-rickshaws in India. Uh, where India already has more than a million e-rickshaws operating and this was not pushed by any government agency or uh, any particular even uh, manufacturer. This is just something where consumers felt uh, it was economical and there were products which were made available to them and the market had just taken off. Uh, so those type of things, I'm very confident that uh, uh, in India, customers are very smart and as soon as those products and uh, associated financing is made available, we are going to see a big uptake uh, in adoption. That is very interesting and I hope that turns true. But talking in general of any consumer, people in general in across the world, I think there is still a myth that uh, say living a sustainable lifestyle is a costly proposition. How would you debunk that? Uh, so this is a part where um, a, a lot of time the challenge happens because people just compare it uh, uh, basically apples and oranges where they would just take uh, uh, same size. For example, just take an example of say uh, uh, LED light or earlier CFL light versus incandescent. If you just say that, okay, 
on a per kilowatt basis what is the cost and yes indeed uh, uh, some of these technologies may be more costly but if you think of it okay how much uh, light i need and then see that okay as compared to incandescent bulb uh, led light is maybe 20 or 30 times more efficient so actually i need a much smaller amount of light and then also considering that uh, uh, lighting has uh, almost 70 or 80% of the lifetime cost in terms of the electricity consumed by the light as compared to just the upfront cost suddenly you see the economics changing right and that's where india ended up uh, being one of the biggest adopters of led lights uh, so same things happens with other technologies where if you just start uh, comparing uh, uh, say a conventional IC engine car and say that okay I want the same performance with the electric vehicle then yes the electric vehicle upfront cost is uh, uh, definitely higher uh, but if you start considering that okay there are uh, uh, users who are driving 150-200 kilometers per day and they are actually spending 70% of the life cycle cost in terms of the operating cost or same happens with anyone who is operating diesel generators for more than 500 hours in a year so there they can actually start deploying uh, even a higher cost technologies and actually save money uh, year on year. Uh, so uh, I would say that uh, some apprehension about the higher cost is not unjustified. At the same time, the amount of fear which is there or the amount of just uh, decision delays which happen where people just assume that we have to wait for uh, cost reduction without realizing that they are actually losing more money while waiting for the price reduction each something which is a little bit unfortunate and that's a part where we need better consumer education uh, and uh, I think collectively we need to uh, continue working on that. That's perfectly well put and it perfectly leads me to the next topic of discussion, next point what I want to discuss with you. The examples that you gave clearly illustrate that you have been in the space for quite some time and you have really tried to communicate to people the benefits of going green, going uh, living a sustainable lifestyle. Many stories kind of illustrate that so how has this been? Like, I think you have done in multiple mediums. You have written written about it. You have spoken at various events. And for the last few years, you have also been on podcast. So how do you think the uptake of this consumer awareness has happened? And how has it changed? Has it been positive so far? Yeah. So uh, again, obviously, I think sometimes we, all of us, we become very greedy. So uh, I have, again, a long list of things which I would have liked to be much, much better in position. But again, if I just take an independent view or if I just look back at some of the notes I had written uh, back in 2010 when I moved back from US to India, uh, I think last 10 years has been an amazing, uh, uh, amazing progress. Uh, uh, I remember just looking at like uh, originally when uh, the national solar mission was launched with a goal of 20 gigawatt solar by 2022, uh, most of the people, including myself, I'll confess, we felt that, oh, government has this tendency of launching this uh, five-year uh, uh, targets and very rarely they exceed uh, even 50% of that. So, okay, so we should be getting 10 gigawatt by 2022. Uh, and then suddenly, I think after 2014, we saw the change in the focus, scaling up of the target in 100. And we can still criticize saying that, oh, maybe we are not, we may or may not reach uh, 100 gigawatt in next two years. But we, if you just take a look back and say that, okay, just five years back, we were, we would have been happy with reaching 10 gigawatt and already we have crossed uh, 30 gigawatt. So that way it is, there is a glass is definitely more than half full. Uh, we still have scope for improvement and there are a number of things where I think we have uh, missed certain opportunities, uh, particularly something close to my heart uh, in terms of the energy storage. I think uh, uh, there have been so many projects and RFPs which have been uh, discussed and retendered in last uh, three, four years. It is very, very frustrating. At the same time, seeing the 
recent tender from Seiki where uh, uh, they have received uh, 1200 megawatt RE plus uh, 300 plus megawatt of uh, storage uh, project. That's one of the largest project uh, of such size. And if we can actually now focus on implementing those, uh, then we can uh, really change. Uh, there have been on other side positive stories on the distributed side where as I already gave example of e-rickshaws or uh, you take an example of telecom towers where there is more than 3 gigawatt hour of advanced energy storage technologies already deployed in India. Sometimes people tend to focus just on these big large projects and think oh India has not yet done many 100 megawatt uh, grid scale projects while uh, uh, forgetting that India is already become one of the uh, largest market and there is more than like a 300% growth in uh, imports of lithium-ion batteries in India in last couple of years. So that way I think the market is growing uh, uh, reasonably fast. Now one of the top priorities for us is to try to make sure that we actually build a, a supporting uh, manufacturing and R&D ecosystem uh, and really don't end up in a situation where five years down the line we are again having this discussion why did we miss the boat and which next technology we should focus on for manufacturing. So we think we are a couple of years late, but we have a very good opportunity this time where we can be an integral part of a global supply chain uh, uh, for uh, EV and energy storage. And that's uh, our uh, complete focus right now for next two years. That's wonderful, Rahul. On a final note, I have to ask you this question. I mean, in the last few years, you mentioned about government setting targets for having a certain amount of renewable capacity and so on. But in the last couple of years, we have seen many people like many cities, many corporations also set targets for like we will cut emissions by 2030, we will source only clean energy by 2025 or we will ban cars, ban petrol or diesel cars by 2040 and so on. So with all these big targets and announcements coming from governments, multinational corporations and uh, everyone. So how do you think the decade ahead is going to shape up in the space? Um, so again, um... I think some of these announcements uh, may look very ambitious right now. Uh, but if you pay sort of a very close attention to how some of the technology changes are happening, I think even without some of these announcements, we will end up being in a much closer to those targets anyway. That's at least my belief. Uh, where I think the governments and some of the policymakers have the opportunity right now is by setting up these targets sooner, they can actually channelize more investments in this uh, uh, within next two or three years and actually build some, capture some of these low investments in their particular state or uh, uh, their regions uh, rather than just this technology is getting developed in some other parts and then different regions just being an importer of those technologies. So uh, we see uh, the way the technology improvement, for example, take an example of renewables, right? Uh, uh, when Maybe uh, uh, during the Obama days when uh, they set a target for solar, that was very ambitious target. Uh, but now if you see the price of the solar, it is the cheapest uh, energy source for uh, for grid. So why not anyone would want to have a higher penetration of uh, solar or higher percentage of solar uh, integrated with the grid because it is already cheapest. Uh, we have never had any arguments uh, discussing, oh, why should we or should we not have... Uh, uh, more uh, of the same uh, resource if it is available at a, at a cheaper price. Uh, so that way I see uh, this transition happening similarly with EVs. Uh, uh, based on all our analysis, we think uh, already uh, customers who are driving more than 100, 150 kilometers per day, uh, they can start saving money right now. But beyond 2023, 2025, 
we see a uh, number of electric vehicles will actually start competing on a upfront capex cost uh, with the with the ic engine vehicles especially with some of the uh, increased uh, emission control uh, the standards which uh, ic engine vehicles have to meet and that's where we see a lot of hybrid vehicles coming in between now and uh, uh, 2023 uh, which can allow both uh, existing ic engine industry as well as uh, uh, some of the emerging ev industry to coexist and then beyond 2025 i guess it will be the choice of the customers which will end up driving so right now some of these targets look very ambitious uh, but when we will be in 2030 like if we have another uh, interview in 2030 i'm pretty sure uh, uh, we will be much closer to some of these targets uh, than what people right now believe. I'm sure I'm, and I'm definitely hopeful that we will have another interview in 2030. That's Dr. Rahul Walawalkar, enthusiastic and hopeful as always. So Rahul, thanks a lot. Thanks for taking time and sharing your views. It's been an absolute pleasure to work with you and uh, interact with you on a regular basis. So thank you for taking time. Uh, thank you very much, Girish. As always, it is a pleasure. Uh, let's talk even between now and 2030. And uh, uh, all the best for your efforts with Mission Shunya and uh, uh, effort you are doing. Again, I still remember the, the day when you started the Emerging Tech Radio podcast uh, for uh, CES. So again, that is still continuing. So again, uh, I'm pretty sure with Mission Shunya, you will be able to reach to much wider audience and uh, continue your good work. Thank you very much for your efforts. So yes, it has been a pleasure to have known Dr. Rahul Walavalkar and worked and collaborated with him. The energy and enthusiasm would rub off on anyone who interacts with him. He is also very welcoming when someone reaches out to him. So you can connect with Rahul on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search his name and you'll find him. In fact, that's how I got to know him long time back. And finally, you heard it right. My first podcast launch was in collaboration with Rahul. Emerging Tech Radio has been running for three years now. So if you want to listen to in-depth conversations on energy featuring business leaders and policymakers from around the world, you should check the podcast. It's available on all platforms where you find Mission Junior. And if you enjoy the stories and conversations, please give this podcast a rating and write a review on Apple Podcast or iTunes. It definitely helps in enabling more people find the show. And also... Feel free to share the podcast to three people every week, friends or colleagues, and it definitely helps in getting more people aligned with our mission of transitioning towards the zero carbon economy. So with that, this is Girish Shokumar and thanks for listening. Hackers, the modern-day criminal. My name is Jack, and I'm glued to a good cybercrime story. Just listen to some of these guys. I accidentally robbed the wrong bank the last time I was in Beirut. The first time you steal a billion dollars, it's a bit of a rush. After you've kind of done this so many times, it's almost expected. Want to hear the rest of their stories and other true stories from the dark side of the internet? Go listen to the podcast, Darknet Diaries.